The Anchored City podcast is recorded in Anchorage, Alaska, on the traditional lands of the Dena'ina Athabascan people. Welcome to the Anchored City Podcast, where we are seeking to connect with Anchorage's soul through her history, stories, and people. I'm your host, Joel Kiekenfeld. You might find it interesting that the city of Anchorage is similar in population to Plano, Texas, Durham, North Carolina, Newark, New Jersey, Stockton, California, Cincinnati, Ohio, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Orlando, Florida. It's larger than Tacoma, Washington, or Boise, Idaho and not that much smaller than Honolulu or New Orleans. And like I said, you might find that interesting. However, my hunch is unless you're preparing for a geography bee, those stats are pretty boring. Population figures are simply the counting or the estimation of the number of people that live in a given place. That number says little about the soul of a place and provides minimal insight into the history, stories, and people of that place. In the previous episode, we began to answer the question, what is this place, by looking at the history of Anchorage. This episode will focus on the stories and the people of the city in an effort to answer that question. I interviewed leaders in Anchorage a couple of years ago and asked them about the city. Two responses stand out. One leader told me, I think Anchorage is trying to decide if we want to be a small town or stay a small city or if we want to become a major metropolis. That issue undermines what we do about homelessness, what we do with job security, what we do with revenues, and all of that stuff. What I am seeing is that Anchorage still wants to be considered a small city that is family-friendly, that is neighborhood-friendly, when it's really growing to become a major metropolis. And with a major metropolis comes homelessness, comes addictions, comes poverty. Anchorage is a city that is making this decision. Are we going to be a small city or are we going to allow ourselves to grow? Another commented, I think Anchorage is the worst kind of city because it has all of the urban problems and all of the suburban problems and half of the rural problems. Those are a couple of voices from inside the city sharing some of the ways they answer the question, what is Anchorage? I thought it might be helpful to ask an outsider what their impression of Anchorage is before hearing from more Anchorage residents. I called up a friend and former professor of mine who taught me a lot of what I know about cities. Hey, thanks for having me. My name is Ron Ruthruff, and I am the Professor of Theology and Culture at the Seattle School of Theology and Culture. Associate Professor, excuse me, I should clarify that. Uh, That's what I do. Who I am is I am a husband to an amazing woman by the name of Linda. I'm the father of 
two sons, Ben and Clayton, that are both agents of change in our community. Um, and uh, I live in an amazing place in Seattle. It's called the 98118. And National Geographic a few years ago uh, said that it was the most ethnically diverse uh, zip code in the United States. I think there's a few neighborhoods in Anchorage, and I think there might be a few neighborhoods in New York City that might argue with that. But we do claim that we are a very eclectic neighborhood um, that now is being bulldozed by gentrification. Ron has traveled to Anchorage more than a dozen times. I asked him to share his first impressions of the city. Well, the, the first impression, I do have to say, and I'm going to chuckle that this is my first, but was halibut pizza. I had no idea that you could put halibut and white sauce on a pizza at a little place called Moose's Tooth and it be... Um, I know that not all of your folks um, listening are sort of privy to uh, theological language, but I'll tell you, it was a religious experience. It was the greatest thing in the world. So that's truly my first memory was um, that. And I think my other first memory was that uh, you and I didn't know each other well, and you cautiously asked me if I minded going to a place where they serve beer. And I said, no, not as long as I can have a couple, which built a, you know, a long friendship with us, not just beer, hopefully. But that being said, I still tell people today that Anchorage is the best beer city I have ever been in in the entire United States. So that's my first two memories. Sorry, that might sound kind of shallow, but really good food, really good food, and absolutely breathtaking beer. I also asked him about his observations of Anchorage. To give you a little context, um, you know, we, we were invited up by the community there, you and some other folks, to do some theological reflection. But really it was a conversation um, that I was able to facilitate around what does it mean to communicate good news, not advice in hard places. And so Anchorage became a fascinating, um, yeah, it just became a fascinating place to have that conversation because you've got um, a large group of very quiet indigenous people that have been there a lot longer than any of us. Um, in some ways it felt, Anchorage felt a little bit like a pit stop like it felt almost like a rest stop where people were storing supplies for someplace else, which I didn't really understand until I began to ask questions about, hey, how come the city kind of looks like a big storage shed, you know, in some ways? But then there were some other things that I thought were really interesting, and that was the deep sense, even in the city, of how independent people were. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but I could just since there was a ton of resilience, but usually that resilience seemed to be connected to a deep sense of independence and taking care of oneself. Ron had written down some words about the city of Anchorage in preparation for the interview. So I asked him about those words. Yeah, well, of course I wrote beer. I wrote beauty. I wrote independent. I wrote a pit stop. I also wrote international. And I wrote ancient and I and, and when I say that I'll just start with this word beauty something about the middle of a city 
literally feeling like it it almost fell off the mountains that that sit on the perimeter of that city um is breathtakingly beautiful i mean i don't know of another place i've been to in the world where you have a bay and mountains that literally wrap themselves around a little place like they do in anchorage um and that beauty though and that the the deep sense of I'm not much of an outdoorsman, so these are words that aren't, I don't, I don't really feel like I have access to a lot of these words, but that sense of, of the wilderness being so close also gives Anchorage, for me anyway, a deep sense of ancientness and spirituality that I, that I feel every time I'm up there. Like something, is, something has happened there that's connected to the beauty in the forest for a long time um, that I feel like I need to be attentive to, but I can't really see or hear. So that was one out-of-town visitor's perspective on what the city is today. But what was it like before outsiders invaded this area in 1914 or 1915? To get this perspective, I asked someone who would know. What I said was in Upper Cook and the Denina Athabascan, hello everybody. Um, my Denina name is Chata, or old man. I come from the place called by the plural objects or uh, literally two hills. Uh, I'm Nolchina, clan of the sky people. My parents are Rick Leggett and Diane Bowles and my wife is Cheyenne Beatty. Uh, a little bit about me. I was born here in Anchorage in 1981. I've lived here my whole life. <clears throat> Product of the Anchorage School District. I uh, got a bachelor's degree in anthropology from the University of Alaska Anchorage. I worked for the Alaska Native Heritage Center uh, when I got out of college. I worked for my regional corporation, Siri, as an assistant historian while I was in college. And for the last nine years, uh, I've been a full-time employee at the Anchorage Museum. I'm currently the senior curator of Alaska history and culture. I'm also the president of the native village of Aklutna. Uh, the only federally recognized tribe in the municipality of Anchorage. And I've been on the council, I think, since 2007. And I've been the president since 2018. Um, so I have deep roots uh, here in Anchorage. Um, my grandmother was full-blooded Denina Athabascan from Aklutna. My mom was born here and raised out in Peters Creek. And... Um, yeah, we go back, uh, you know, many generations on, on my mom's side. I asked Aaron what Anchorage was like before it was invaded by people from outside. Well, um, so the, uh, my people, the Denine Athabascans are the only uh, Athabascans or Dene speaking people in the north that live on a, uh, a maritime climate, i.e., Cook Inlet, Kachemak Bay, Kinnick Arm. Uh, so we have all the typical attributes of uh, our Athabascan or Diné relatives that you would find in the interior. But in addition to that, we also harvested 
uh, sea mammals and some of our technologies were borrowed or adapted from our neighbors, the Aleutic uh, or Sukbiak people, Prince William Sound, Kodiak Island and the Alaska Peninsula, and some from the Yupik of uh, Bristol Bay, Lake Iliamna. So within our region, there's a lot of biodiversity or kind of mini um, environmental climates. Anybody that spent any time in South Central Alaska will know that there's quite a bit of a weather difference between say Talkeetna and Homer or Seldovia. Uh, not a massive change, but enough for it to really uh, affect in the wintertime primarily, not so much in the summer, um, that kind of adaptation. And so down, you know, along Kachemak Bay, Kenai, uh, Nanilchik area is more kind of a maritime area. On the other side of Cook Inlet over at Tionic and uh, Custitan, um, it was much more marine oriented and a little more temperate Whereas if you get further uh, up into Upper Cook Inlet, so past, say, Willow, uh, it becomes much more forested, uh, colder, and colder in the winter and warmer in the summer. So these all had effects on um, some of the cultural characteristics. But that being said, where we are, uh, in Anchorage, my people, the Kenachtana, the Kinnick River people, we're kind of squarely kind of in the middle of those two sort of extremes. So it's sort of like the Goldilocks, you know, uh, porridge, not too hot, not too cold. I like to think. Um, in my life, you know, the coldest temperature I've ever seen is 31 below one time. I can count on my hand the number of times I've seen it go to 20 below. Um, and until last year, the hottest I'd ever seen it get was uh, 86 degrees. Last summer completely blew that out of the water at, at 91. I never thought we would get above 90. I've heard anecdotal stories that it got up to 90, but I, for my life, I kind of base it on, okay, what is it doing at the airport, which is always a little cooler. So, um, but to answer your question, uh, my people, the Kenachtana, the Kinnick River people really focused along um, Kinnick Arm, the Lower Susitna, and the Anchorage Bowl. Our main winter village was at either Kinnick uh, or at Aklutna. They kind of would recycle locations, but the main winter villages were located there. So Anchorage, when we think of Anchorage, usually we think we're talking about the Anchorage Bowl or uh, downtown Anchorage or sort of the historic Anchorage. And in those areas, they were largely used for uh, seasonal summer fish camps. The most important being near the mouth of Ship Creek. Uh, of course, this was also the first fish camp that after the railroad came in, we lost. So we, we kind of just over ensuing decades, um, we kind of got pushed off of our different camps. So first, by 1915, 1916, we really couldn't fish right where we had at the mouth of Ship Creek. Um, 
so then it was the mouth of Campbell Creek and Chester Creek and Point Warren's off and Point Campbell. Those were fished up until, um, well, Chester Creek up until the late 20s, early 30s, and then Point Warren's off, uh, Point Campbell, kind of, if you think about out by the airport towards Kincaid, uh, those were up until World War II when that was all taken over by the military. And so the only real viable fish camp at that point was out on Fire Island. And I had family members that fished out there uh, up into the early 1980s when it kind of became no longer feasible uh, because of the regulations, you might have like a 36 hour window opening, people had jobs. It just wasn't uh, sustainable anymore. And it's also a bit dangerous going out there. So there were, there were easier and better ways for us to get our fish. Um, but as far as contact goes, the Denina are also um, unique among Northern Athabascans or Diné speaking Athabascans in Alaska in that we were the first um, first group of people to, to have an encounter with uh, outsiders. The first obviously being Captain Cook and I've sort of talked about that ad nauseum and uh, what that encounter really meant at the end of the day. It really didn't mean much for the Dinah perspective from a um, scientific map making discovery um, perspective, it was a significant event, but it didn't really change the cultural landscape. What changed the cultural landscape was by the 1790s, late 1780s, early 1790s, the first, uh, there were two competing uh, Russian fur companies that, uh, put up small forts in Cook Inlet. They competed with each other for um, a little under a decade. There was a lot of cultural strife uh, because these guys weren't actually officially sanctioned by the Russian government. They were kind of these, what they're called promyshleniki or sort of independent uh, fur merchants. And their profits were based on getting the most amount of fur. So there was a lot of um, unfortunate things that happened, uh, kidnappings, uh, taking, forcibly taking women, young girls. And eventually in 1796, uh, there was an organized uprising where the forts at, uh, Old Iliamna near Tyonic and at Kenai were all, um, attacked and, and burned to the ground primarily, uh, so then there was one fort ostensibly that was left at, at Kenai uh, and sort of this tenuous balance. And then in, I believe in 1798, I got to double check on the dates. Um, Paul, the czar, Paul the first granted uh, a monopoly to what would become the Russian America company, uh, which was the successor of the Shelikov company. And, after that point into the 19th century, um, the Russians also started to bring in priests to try to convert uh, the Denina to orthodoxy. This largely was unsuccessful until 
between 1836 and 1839, there was a terrible smallpox epidemic that wiped out about half the Dena'ina population. Our best estimates are pre-contact, there were probably about 5,000 Dena'ina um, living in our homeland. And after that, it was about half that number. And the priests were in charge of inoculating their followers. The, the Russians had a, a vaccine for smallpox. And so essentially, if you went to church and you got the vaccine, you didn't die. But what's important is that what came out of that was this sort of indigenized orthodoxy. And the most uh, kind of prevalent um, what would be legacy of that is if you go out to Eklutner and many of the Dena'ina communities, you'll see these small houses that are called spirit houses. Uh, traditionally, the Dena'ina uh, cremated human remains, but in the Orthodox Church, they can't have cremation. They have to be buried in the ground. And so our belief was, still is, that if uh, they're not cremated, the spirit may become confused as they literally kind of travel the world. Uh, and the way it's been described to me is they kind of almost like relive their life or follow their footsteps. In an Orthodox context, this is usually like a 40 day journey. Uh, and then eventually a uh, spirit house is put on top of the, the grave and traditionally a person's prized possessions, a set new set of clothing, uh, valuable tools, guns, gloves, uh, slippers, uh, basic utensils, a plate, knife, cup, um, would all go into the house as, and also the graves would be attended where they would burn food, uh, for the deceased. And so there's a whole process there because the priests were largely based in either Kenai or Kodiak, the, they would show up once every two to three years and um, so a lot of the um, kind of day-to-day -day religion was left to the lay readers uh, who were from the communities who practiced most of the services except for funerals uh, and baptisms and official weddings and these kinds of things. And so it, it created this sort of um, blended uh, theology, I guess, would be the best way of, of putting it. So, and even to this day, not so much in my generation or my mom's generation, but in my grandmother's generation, they were all baptized uh, Russian Orthodox, and we still practice a lot of those um, customs. There, it, it's it's dying out. There's there's no no doubt about it. But um, but it's still a part of our identity. The other thing that should be pointed out is during that time, the Russians had a different attitude toward native language than we would find later with the Americans. And that was that the Russians never forbid us from speaking our language. It's just that we had to learn Russian. And some of the priests in other um, native groups like the Yupik or the Aleuts or uh, the Aleutics on Kodiak actually learned the language. We weren't as fortunate uh, to ever have a priest learn our language. There's some reasons behind that. But um, so that kind of takes us through uh, up through the middle of the 19th century. 
Uh, and at that time, from the survivors of the smallpox epidemic, uh, the Denina were also uniquely situated to become middlemen in this fur trade that was going on between the Russian America Company and the interior of Alaska with uh, getting land animal furs. By that point, they had switched over to uh, getting uh, land animal furs. Sea otters had pretty much been wiped out. Uh, the fur seals were still going on in the Pribilofs, but so it was things like um, mink, marten, and beaver uh, being the most important. And so there were Denina leaders or chiefs literally called Keshka or rich men that did quite well by um, trading, you know, taking 20 beavers, 10 mink, and 30 marten, and then trading that for, I don't know, four rifles and 10 blankets and some copper kettles or something, beads, taking those into uh, the upper Kuskokwim around McGrath, up into the Tanana, and doubling their profits. And so they became quite wealthy by their sort of, by traditional standards. And it was kind of looked at it as, as sort of a, a heyday. That, that things were progressing, you know, that there was this sort of uneasy alliance and truce. It should also be pointed out that the Russians never had more than, I think, 20, 20 or 25 men stationed in all of, of Cook Inlet. And at that time, you know, there were, you know, 10 times that amount of, of Denina. And they knew that. And they needed them to be able to, um, to survive. Uh, so then in 1867, uh, everything changed, not overnight, um, you know, basically switched flags. There was a small contingent of Russian soldiers that were stationed down at Kenai, but nothing really happened until the 1880s when salmon canneries started to show up in our territory, primarily down in Kenai, on the other side of Cook Inlet over towards uh, Custitan. Um, and then eventually by the beginning of the 20th century, even in uh, upper Cook Inlet. So um, when the railroad came in in 1914, 1915, and there's this sort of boom overnight, um, the Denina didn't, I don't think anybody could have realized that this was going to be the huge pivot point. They had seen other small booms occur, um, again, uh, either centered around canneries or gold mining or big game hunters exploration were all happening starting in the late 1890s. Um, but it was, you know, Anchorage was to then become within a few decades, the largest uh, city in Alaska. And ultimately it was selected as the headquarters for the Alaska Railroad. The reason it was selected as the headquarters was, because uh, if you think about it, um, the headquarters being 120 miles north of the, the terminus of the railroad at Seward, and then being another um, 250 miles south of Fairbanks, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But the reason was that Seward at that point, because it was a deep ice 
ice-free port was already a, a going concern of a town. There were some local uh, people that got wind that the federal government was going to take over this two failed private railroad attempts. Land prices went up. So instead of having the headquarters at the terminus, which in some ways would have made a lot more sense and we're kind of still saddled with an inadequate port uh, because of Cook Inlet, the tides and, and the mud, that's what we have. Um, but I often wonder, had it happened 10 years before, um, what, what would have been? In other words, in all likelihood, Seward would be the metropolis uh, and Anchorage would be maybe the size of, of Seward or maybe Kenai, I don't know. But it, wouldn't, it would not be what it is today. There, there's no, no doubt in my mind um, about that. Uh, the other thing obviously that changed was uh, World War II. So maybe there would have been more buildup, but, but it, you know, what, it might have split the populations. Maybe um, we might add something more akin to the Matsu Valley, but it would not have been the metropolis that it became. And so, you know, just to give you an example, within three generations of my family, so when my mom, or excuse me, when my grandmother was born in 1933, Anchorage had a population of about 5,000. Uh, when my mom was born in 1957, Anchorage had a population, kind of a post-war boom, uh, of about 90,000. And when I was born in 1981, Anchorage had a population of about 180,000, um, kind of coming off of the pipeline and, and the buildup that, all, that occurred. And so now, I used to say we're at 300,000. I think uh, the next census is gonna probably knock us down to maybe 295 or 290, uh, which is interesting to me because in my lifetime, I've only seen it go up, 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 and up. It's kind of, it did kind of flatten out and I thought we would kind of stick around 300,000, but we're probably gonna uh, lose some numbers here. So we'll see. Um, so, that kind of sets the scene for that. The other major kind of turning point for the Denina also, uh, which I've been talking about a lot recently, and ironically, here we are in the middle of COVID, and that is that 102 years ago in the late fall, early winter of 1918, there was the worldwide Spanish flu pandemic and that had a devastating impact on the Denina and it wiped out uh, best estimates are probably another half of our population, which had rebounded to maybe 3000. And so we were cut to 1500. And at that point by 1920, we had went from being the majority in South Central to being the minority. And that's only obviously continued uh, to this day. So uh, today, uh, Aklutna has about 350 um, tribal members. Not all of them live here. Maybe about 300 of them live in kind of the Anchorage Bowl and into the Matsu Valley. So we represent, you know, 0.001% of the population. But we're still here. 
I also asked Aaron to share how he would answer the question, what is this place? Well, I think, I think it's on multiple levels. I think for most of my life until very recently, Anchorage was sort of this Northern extension of the Pacific Northwest. It was, we, we worked hard to kind of see ourselves as uh, a copy of Seattle or uh, Portland, or maybe even on a further extension, San Francisco, which, you know, all three of those places have direct connections to Alaska. Uh, you know, until the gold rush um, in Alaska, San Francisco was the major uh, metropolitan city on the West Coast. Uh, largely because of its own 1849 gold rush. Uh, then, you know, there was kind of this competition between San Francisco and Seattle of who was going to be kind of, you know, the, the, the gateway to Alaska. Seattle pretty much won that, uh, that battle, I guess. And also it was tied to uh, the fishing fleets uh, that sprung up in the Pacific Northwest. And so um, it's, it's, it's been an evolution. Um, and with that evolution, though, has always been this looking toward the future of what this place could be. There wasn't much looking to its past. Uh, as far as Anchorage towns or cities go, uh, we're, I mean, we're a baby. As far as a major city goes, um, we're, I mean, it's almost non-existent. Every place that has a population of our size was established well, more, well over a hundred years ago. We're now just coming past our, depending on how you count it, uh, either 1915 being the centennial of Anchorage or actually um, this year, 19. Uh, 2020 is the 100th anniversary of the city of Anchorage. What people don't realize is that from 1915 till 1920, there was no civil government. The civil government was all federal. So it wasn't until 1920 that Anchorage formed as a, as a town or a city and took on its responsibilities, like having a police force and collecting taxes, um, you know, putting in electrical infrastructure, water, sewer, all those kinds of things. And so it happened very quickly. And there was always this looking to what's going to be the next boom or um, what does the future hold? There was a great article that was written in the uh, Saturday Evening Post in 1959, right after statehood when it's called the town that can't wait for tomorrow. And I think that sentiment is pretty much the sentiment that I grew up with in Anchorage. It was that how can we recreate what was left behind? What is the markings of a distinguished city? And that virtually ignored its indigenous history and it's, it's recognition of the first people. There was kind of a generic passing reference to Alaska natives. But, you know, when I was a kid, there were more totem poles in Anchorage than there were meaningful representations 
of the Denina. And the work that I do is a direct result of seeing that and realizing that that had to change. It's not really in our nature to want to kind of push it forward, but I just reached a point where I realized that if somebody doesn't pick it up, that it's probably never going to happen. And so I kind of made it my life's mission to, to change that narrative. And I've luckily uh, been largely successful in that effort with other people. It's, it's not just me, but um, I don't think there's any doubt that I've been a critical voice in reminding people that this place is a Denina place and always will be a Denina place. Because when I grew up here, um, I really didn't feel that. I mean, we would occasionally go out and visit my grandmother in Peters Creek. We'd go out to the village, but it just, it didn't seem like there was any talk of it. And so I just started to learn our history. We were very fortunate that because of our proximity to, to the, the world, so to speak, um, there was a lot of documentation from our elders who didn't want to see this disappeared. And it was all kind of sitting on these bookshelves. And so I kind of took those books and, and learned from them and, and, you know, talked to people, talked to our, um, you know, distant kin in the more isolated villages, like in Nondalton and especially in Lyme Village, where uh, subsistence was a primary means of, of, of life. The more work that I did and the more I started to learn my language and understand our place names and understand who we were, I actually came to get a better understanding of the town and city that I've lived in my whole life. And so it created this whole new uh, context and meaningfulness to the work that I do and also the, the place, the only place I've ever lived. I've been fortunate to, to get to travel around the world um, in, in my job, and, uh, but I've always come back here. And so the only home I've ever known has been in Anchorage, which is kind of a rarity as I get older, even though I'm not that old, and even though I've been doing this now for, oh, close to 20 years, um, I find that there aren't a lot of people that can say they were born and raised here and, and have lived here their whole life. Aaron wasn't the only person that I asked about what Anchorage is. My name is George Martinez, and I am a father, an educator, a diplomat, and a community entrepreneur who is also a candidate for um, the mayor of the city of Anchorage in 2021. I was the special assistant to the current mayor for four years, um, focused primarily on youth development, economic development, education, and diversity. I asked George about what brought him to Anchorage. Oh, like many before uh, us, uh, we were not born here. My, my family uh, and I, my, my wife and I decided to, uh, to, to raise our family here after stepping foot here over a dozen years ago, uh, doing community work, working and to invest in political literacy and, and building capacity across young professionals in Anchorage uh, at that time as a project of the university and the Urban League. Uh, 
those relationships kept growing. I felt a very strong physical and spiritual connection to both the work here and the physical place of here um, as translated through my relationships with people. And um, we've now been here full time, uh, more than uh, a little more than half of the more than half of the dozen years was so closing in on our seventh year full time uh, in Anchorage as residents. Uh, we own a home on the east side and uh, we have a, an old ranch home settled in well, a 61 ranch home. And, and um, you know, this is a city that quite honestly is, uh, is the last U.S. city that I want to be in. I was curious about why he said this was the last U.S. city he wanted to live in. I grew up originally a child of a single parent uh, in New York City. So overcoming both poverty and the, that particular concrete jungle and, and, and urban life and, uh, and, and went on to become the first person in my family to graduate high school, go on to college, uh, became a university professor at, time, at an age of 24 years old, been teaching for over 20 years now at this point, and, and just had a, a, a very blessed journey in a city of, of, of tremendous difficulty. And on the way, I also had a chance to become uh, a, a cultural envoy, appointed a cultural envoy, uh, an international, essentially cultural diplomat for the United States of America. And there was always a soul, you know, there was always a thing that was in my soul that was driving me from the, uh, the, the certain rhythm in New York, a certain disposition, a certain... Uh, just a way of being. I just felt like I wanted to continue to grow. Uh, there are a lot of folks who see that city or cities like that as the epitome of of it all, where you where you have to get to to be it. And, and maybe it was because I was from there and, and had been successful uh, in a variety of jobs and on all sorts of endeavors that um, that I was you know ex- eager to explore. And and when I started exploring, I essentially lived overseas for many years traveled across the Western Hemisphere and, and worked in some of the most difficult and at-risk communities uh, throughout the hemisphere. I've worked then after subsequently as a, uh, a civil society partner for the United Nations Alliance of Civilizations and have traveled uh, to other parts of the world doing uh, bridge building work essentially. So uh, the diplomatic role that I carry comes from both exposure to a global diasporic, uh, you know, block from a New York context, traveling the world and, um, and living overseas, you have this unique place in Anchorage that has more cultural diversity than Queens, New York, uh, room to grow and a, and, a, and, and a legacy and a history of families who came here in pursuit of the opportunity to raise their families and, and with the quality of life that was unparalleled in other places. And with the opportunity that if you could imagine it and you can work hard, that there are still so many opportunities to grow, to develop, and to build things that those two um, components were just exciting to me. Um, But the work itself aligned to the calling of my work, uh, the work of, of bringing people together built on indigenous land 
built with values that transcend uh, time essentially and um and 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 then thinking of what the modern world looks like and when i first stepped foot here i met a vic fisher so vic fisher's part of my story um first vic fisher a lot of folks don't know vic fisher went to a competitor high school in new york to mine and now we are separated by a few years so we're not we weren't in the same cohort or classes at all but it just speaks to who found their way here from where and what character they brought to be able to help build and develop and just contribute right and but vic fisher shared with me uh, a, a little bit about both his journey but then when i met him to meet Oh, a dozen some odd years ago, a person who signed a constitution of a state. Um, as a political scientist, that was always exciting to me. It told me that we could still imagine a tomorrow because the framework was young enough to, to actually continue to, to work on. And that's, that, that's exciting and, and, uh, and, uh, and the opportunity to be a part of that conversation is, uh, is, is also fantastic let alone it's a great place to live. I asked George about what his first impressions of Anchorage were when he moved here. I walked, I didn't see the place, I saw the people first. So, so, so first and foremost, I saw the people, obviously you see the, you see the landscape, right? And there's a, you know, and, but I had traveled a lot so I could recognize beauty. Um, and there's a natural beauty here um, with the green, with this, the mountains and, and the sky and on a clear day. So there's just the beauty that's inherent in a, in a, in a, in a place um, like Anchorage. But it was, it's the people, you know, like first stepping foot here, arriving, seeing diversity that was unexpected, seeing uh, uh, a cultural difference between the expectations of tomorrow and the challenges of today than where I came from. Okay. So that I can, I, I could see a difference between the, the, the arc of the future that looked different when I, when I stepped foot here, I felt the, the energy was different. The, the, the ambition was, was different and it was still raw and young enough that it was, um, you know, that, that, that was, that was exciting when I stepped foot here as well, like the people were interested in, in growing is what I felt. And at least that my hosts, you know, and I've, I've, I've met people who have the diversity of opinions about growing uh, since, but the folks that brought me here uh, had a, they were, they were striving themselves to start to reach out beyond the boundaries and, and find um, solidarity and allyship with, with folks who, uh, they thought had some things to contribute to the conversation here. So I felt extremely honored, first of all, for being a person who some folks here felt like I had some things to contribute, uh, but the spirit of, of wanting to learn, of wanting to grow, uh, has always been, uh, been, been a very strong component of what my impression were from the, the first day. Then I asked how he would answer the question, what is Anchorage? The short answer for me is Anchorage is the gem of the last frontier. Um, it, is, it, is, it is a hub city 
that is the gem of the last frontier. Now, what that means to people, um, you know, I think it's, 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 it'll be in the conversation, but, you know, the diversity of, of opportunity here is, is exciting, both to imagine that question, um, to think about some of the challenges of where things are and, 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 and can go, um, but it's a gem, you know, and, 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 and that, that, feels, that feels important to me with respect to, I believe that Anchorage could lead the way for the country. There's a strong feeling in my, in my bones that what we do here will help reset the nation. And, 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 and maybe that's a spiritual connection, but, but it also goes back to that relationship between how young and eager um, folks have been. So, but I also think that there's been some leadership gaps um, with respect to uncovering that identity. So I, I tend to just listen, see a gem, want to, want to nurture that, but I also want to engage with people's feelings are. I mean, I've had a lifelong Alaskan, lifelong uh, Anchorageite person born and raised here who lived in other cities uh, a few years ago share with me when I said, uh, you know, I got, um, you know, talking about love for the city and building a civic and a stewardship around love for the city. And, 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 <laughs> and he looked at me and said, I, I understand the love, but this is a city? Right. So, so I knew what he was saying. He was, he was straight joking. And he was basically knowing that he lived in other cities that had the, the things that are the trappings, the amenities, the identity of what a city is, knowing here that some people are like what you said, this is, a, this is Alaska's largest village. This is a, a small town. What, but the reality is the urban challenges are city challenges, and they're happening faster than a lot of those frames can maintain and keep up with. So the challenges help to also shape the identity of what we are. And in a city, um, we see urban challenges different than if we were in a town seeing urban challenges. So there's a frame that, that is evolving. Um, and I could tell it's evolving because a year fast forward from that conversation with my friend, who's a musician in, in Anchorage, uh, he's phenomenal. He, uh, I saw him at a, at a holiday party, and, uh, and he introduced me as, uh, as a candidate for mayor of, of the city of Anchorage. And I said to him, you use the word city. And, uh, and he said, uh, he's like, uh, I'm growing. Right? So I don't think that there's a right answer yet. I think the first right answer is, there's a movement to recognize that we are on the Nina Athabascan land. And first and foremost, that part of the identity has not been fully developed, fully um, allowed to breathe. So I recognize that we are an indigenous land and that is a thing that, um, that I helped to, to work through with uh, First Alaskans for a dozen years being a part of their work and the Alaskan Native Dialogues on Racial Equity but also through Welcoming Anchorage. It was one of the initiatives of this administration that I helped to spearhead. It was essentially recognizing that we are indigenous land, first part of identity. And then I worked on some projects with the, with the, uh, the Cooperative Extension, and one project specifically was reimagining the urban. And Anchorage was a, a test city because we qualify for programs that are rural designations, 
we are a, 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 in an urban setting technically to the state, although we are, you know, there's not a consensus. Right? So there's a, a variety of ways that our identity is in flux, but, but we are a city, um, we are a gem, and we are a hub of hope and opportunity. Those things are the values that I think persist and um, and I invite I, I, and that's part of what I want to do is invite people to have this conversation and 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 then to do the work of what it means to become that. Uh, if I can just give a quote, I, I was thinking of this quote. Uh, somebody mentioned it today at a, at a at another meeting I was a part of, and it was a it's a James Baldwin quote. And uh, and and I'm I'm just going to uh, tweak it to an Anchorage an Anchorage uh, centric quote, but essentially. He said, um, James Baldwin said, uh, great men have done great things here and will again, and we can make America what America must become. And so I like the phrase, I love that. And it basically is, in my mind, great people have done great things here and will again and are today, and we can make Anchorage what Anchorage must become. And, and I think we'll make the road by walking. And once we know the core identity that we are on ancestral land, and uh, and we and we we drive forward with values. Um, we'll tell our own story. I asked both Aaron and George about the future of Anchorage. Well, there's there's two ways to look at that. I think there's one way to look at it that Anchorage is sort of its own entity that is either going to sort of thrive or or move forward or there's the, the sort of what is the direction of Alaska as a state, which I think is actually more important of a question to answer. Um, good friend of mine uh, who's uh, helped write the, uh, the program that became the permanent fund dividend, Cliff Grow, uh, said, and who's, who grew up here, was born and raised here, and has history going back, the, the fundamental question is who stays and who pays? And we have not answered that question. For my entire life, I've never paid a state income tax and I've only known the permanent fund dividend program. Uh, but we are approaching a point where we're gonna have some really tough decisions to make. And in some ways, I think, you know, what we're going through right now, COVID has both delayed that and also created new uh, challenges for us. Uh, and I, a year ago, I had a little different perspective of, of what our future was, which essentially was going to be probably stagnant. Uh, I now believe that we're gonna face some tough, tough times and fundamentally, I believe that we as Alaskans are going to start having to pay our fair share. Now, what that number is and how that happens is up for debate. And the politics of that are complex. Ultimately, what I think is going to need to happen is that there's going to have to be, well, well, there's a couple of things. Number one, um, we're probably going to have to have some form of an income tax. Um, 
and probably some form of state sales tax and some reduction or stagnation uh, to the permanent fund dividend program. Um, but what it's going to take is it's going to take those Alaskans that are truly care about this place to rise up and say, what is the future of our, our state and our city in particular? I mean, because, you know, they, what do they say? All politics are local. What kind of a future do we want? And do we want to continue to only be um, this sort of resource colony? Um, because we've never really had to face that hard decision. Um, if you look at the history of the state, uh, we became a state in 1959. For the first couple of years, there was federal aid to kind of build up the infrastructure. The feds still owned the Alaska Railroad. Uh, and just about the time those coffers had run dry was in the fall of 63 into the winter of 64. And then we had the 64 earthquake. And all of a sudden, the billions of dollars came in to rebuild. Uh, and that kind of carried us up to 1968 when the discovery was made at Prudhoe Bay. So we, we kind of kept on that road. Then oil prices you know, went down to uh, $9 a barrel although we've now beaten that with oil futures being at negative $39 a barrel. Um, and we were just about uh, to really have to make some hard decisions. A good example of that, I always like to tell the story that I read when I was doing research from the New York Times that discussed our beautiful performing arts center downtown. So that was built during what was called Project 80s in Anchorage, where we got, you know, an extension to the museum, you have the Coastal Trail, the Performing Arts Center, the Sullivan Arena, the Egan Center, and the Lusak Library. Well, the Performing Arts Center was initially supposed to cost $45 million. At the end of the day, it ended up costing $70 million. It had a bad roof. And in 1987, the mayor of Anchorage, Tom Fink, didn't know where he was going to get the $600,000 to keep the heating and light on in the building uh, and was talking about essentially mothballing it. Um, that didn't happen. Luckily, uh, what people don't realize is what probably saved it was the ability of the Anchorage School District to send all those school kids uh, to go see plays at the Performing Arts Center. You know, when I went to school, probably at least twice a year, we would go see some play down there. Um, and I know they still do it, I don't think quite as frequently. Uh, so that kind of carried it, it forward. But I remember being in this beautiful building and, and sort of wondering, what is this and, and why, why do we have it? Um, but I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed the Lusak Library. I enjoyed the museums. I mean, I grew up with all these things. So after a little while, you kind of take them for granted. But by the time I was graduating high school, you know, there was another slump that we were in. And I went to school with a lot of kids whose parents uh, had worked up on the slope that had layoffs, gas dropped down to, 
you know, I think the cheapest I ever saw was 93 cents when I was, you know, after I got my license. So I think it was at that point, God, what would that have been in 99, 2000, like 12, $13 a barrel, something, maybe 15. And then it just, you know, again, we were like really going to have to make these hard decisions and uh, a good example of that and something, and this is one that I, I like to point out that how quickly people forget when Murkowski, the Senator Murkowski, uh, Frank, Frank the bank, uh, became governor. One of the un hugely unpopular decisions that he did was he eliminated something called the longevity bonus. If you had lived in Alaska for more than 30 years, you got a couple hundred dollars a month from the state. Um, I remember my, my grandfather being quite disgusted that he wasn't going to get that anymore, but I haven't heard anybody talk about a longevity bonus in over 15 years. And in fact, people I think have forgotten that that program even existed. There were other programs like uh, free tuition waivers for seniors at the university of Alaska. Um, when I was going to school there, you know, we would have a couple uh, retirees that would take classes for free. Uh, they just had to pay the fees, uh, but they got the, you know, the free education, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. I'm just pointing it out as some of these programs. I also, from the time I started at UAA in the fall of 2000 until I graduated in the spring of 2006, I watched them put close to probably a, almost a billion dollars into the university system. And so it's like, what is sustainable. And I guess to answer your question for the future, we need to have those hard discussions. What is sustainable in our state? And there are challenges that we're facing um, that aren't just Alaskan problems, but are, are national uh, problems, retail being a good example of that, uh, watching all these um, chains and, and stores come in that are now, you know, having uh, a tough time going forward. I, it still amazes me that we have a Sportsman's Warehouse, a Cabela's, and a Bass Pro Shop. When I was a kid, we just ordered everything out of the Cabela's catalog, and I'm not that old. So, um, you know, there were a lot more kind of smaller, not quite mom and pop, but uh, – smaller businesses that used to exist. Um, I remember, you know, when I was a kid, Fred Myers was a hardware and clothing and, uh, you know, it, it didn't have food. Walmart didn't have food. Um, we had smaller kind of like uh, Walgreens, a version of Walgreens called pay and save that uh, used to sell guns and fishing stuff and, you know, it, 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 it's just constantly evolving, but at the same time, for our future, I want to stay optimistic because I'm kind of fully invested in this place, not just professionally, but, but culturally and um, economically, because... I also sit on the board of my village corporation, who's the pri largest private landholder. And, 
you know, what do we do with all our lands and, and what are we going to do for our future? And so I think for me, what it's going to take is people becoming better educated about what is Anchorage and what is Alaska's history and what is its future, not the version that you think it is. And what are you doing to make it a better community? And so that's why like a podcast like this, I think is important or it's the one I mentioned uh, crude conversations, another great one. My, my buddy Cody's doing um, to look at a lot of these challenges that we face. And there are a lot that, you know, we're still fighting over as we speak. Uh, the big one being obviously uh, homelessness, addiction, mental health treatment, and the people not wanting to see what they view as their kind of, you know, um, what I would call, you know, this Namby sort of attitude, not in my backyard. Whereas we have to come together as a community and kind of work together. It's not about the individual, it's about the community. And so uh, the reason I do the work that I do is I wanna see a better community, a thriving community, a healthy community uh, that um, embraces its past, celebrates its future and recognizes um, you know, the indigenous contributions. And there are deserts that I have yet to cross. The future has to be practical as well as poetic, right? So I think the poetry in my mind speaks to the, 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 that idea of that Baldwin quote, which is essentially, we can make it what we must become. Like make Anchorage is one of the themes that I promote in, 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 in my public work as well. And, um, and the people make Anchorage. So it's this we are Anchorage feeling that we're in together. That's, that is a, uh, a thing that we have to continue to move forward on. I think bringing people together, welcoming uh, a, a city that's committed to recognizing that we are all on ancestral land. So the welcoming character of our city has to not be optional. It really is about embedding that into the way we do business, the way our city engages with the public, and that was some of the work that I was focused on during this administration and will continue to be focused on. Um, but I see that even in the best years, even in the best days, uh, we've also had challenges with looking forward and going to what's next. Um, and so that when we had, when we had uh, the coffers that were flush with oil resources and state resources, we didn't necessarily invest in tomorrow in, a, in, in, in our system so that we're still dealing with a lot of systems that are antiquated that have to now keep up with the times. And this COVID moment is giving us an example to look at education here um, and, and how we deliver education and what a forward-facing future um, lifelong learning city uh, looks like. Um, and so that relationship with the university is going to start to matter a lot. So I see a lot of early opportunities to create alignment to systems that need to be refreshed or the language that I use is reset and rebuild uh, so that we can rebound in a different way than 
where even our best years had us. Because like, once again, even when, when we had a price of oil was going really well, nonprofits were relatively flush and, uh, and people felt like the economy was strong, young people still wanted to leave. They still was a, there still was a thing where young people got to a place where like, I, if I want to imagine imagining and growing and, and expanding my wings and, and, and seeing what happens, I have to do that in another city, even like a city where I'm originally from. And, uh, and, and what I've learned on all my walks is that's not how it works. You build it where you are. You become what you, you, you live what you want to become. You bring that forward into your public life and you create a new pathway forward. Um, and so I, so I think that we're on the verge of, of all of these questions leading into some practical steps forward. So what is this place? Do we start by seeing it as Denina Athabaskan land? Do we consider all of the opportunities and limitations of the city? Do we lean into being that city that can't wait for tomorrow? Or do we let Anchorage teach us what this place is? J.R. Short in a great book called The Urban Order says, cities are a bunch of things. At the end of the quote, he says, but cities really are a reflection of ourselves. When we examine the city, we examine ourselves. And that's why I argue that cities are a classroom, because they truly tell us how we're doing with each other. They reveal the best and the worst in us. What if instead of trying to figure out what Anchorage is, we let it tell us who we are? What if we see the city as a mirror that reveals the best and worst of the people that live in this place? What if rather than a problem to be solved, the city is a classroom that is teaching us about us? What is this place? It is the history, stories, and people that live here. And the city is waiting to share that history, tell those stories, and reveal its people if we are willing to look into the mirror and take a seat in the classroom that is Anchorage.
Anchorage is a spiritual place because its people are spiritual people. Here are some of what our guests shared today as practices that sustain their spirit. So first, I remember and I remind myself um, with respect to um, my wellness and my spiritual relationship, two things. Be in the world, not of the world. Uh, and, I, and, I, and, and so I remind myself of that. I use that phrase. I, I, I put it in letters and I and, and, and have a word that I say, bitwinatwa, which is essentially B-I-T-W-N-O-T-W, and it's be in the world, not of the world. So that is one of the things that just reminds me of, of to recalibrate. But also in my journeys, and this is another... This is, a, this is another advantage that I feel like I get to carry because I have such a depth and diversity of experiences to bring to my leadership and to the endeavors that I, that I seek to, um, to, to work on. The, I learned floating. And, uh, and essentially, the reminder of floating is that when you breathe and you, and, and you take those breaths and you remind yourself to breathe, that the uh, the body will float naturally that you just have to let yourself breathe sometimes and so i remind myself to be in the world not of the world and don't forget to breathe so that you can recalibrate to the 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 kind of the larger rhythm of the of of the of the ecosystem of the universe um and 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 find that balance and so that i i use those things all the time and and find my balance I'm reading postmodern philosopher uh, by the name of John Caputo, and um, I don't necessarily agree with the fact that Caputo kind of poo-poos the afterlife completely. But what he does say is he talks about this idea of God sort of breaking into our reality through moments. And I really believe that he's on to something. So for me, it's the, it's the practice, and it really is a mindfulness practice of presence. You know, if I'm, if I'm preoccupied um, by the future, or if I'm haunted by the past, it really is impossible to be present. But if I can let go of what's happened, and I'm not so uh, focused on what's going to be next, if I can truly be present, I believe it's one of the chances, it's the, probably the only chance in my life where I can truly live eternally now. And so I, I do a lot of work on how do I be in a moment, in a moment with you right now, in a moment with somebody later on, but how do I let go of the past and the future to really enjoy the sacredness of now? And that feels deeply spiritual and kind of eternal. I think for me, what, what, if I had the, the closest thing to sustaining me is, is getting out into those places that, uh, that haven't been completely, um, I hate to use the word modernized, but, but connecting to the land, I guess, is, is the bet what I'm trying to say. So for me, the most kind of spiritual place that I have been and even talking to um, 
my brother and sister who are not involved in this work directly, um, we all come back and say that anytime that we go up to a Klutna Lake, we feel connected to our people, to our ancestors and to our home. So I try to, to get up there. I try to, you know, when I'm walking along a coastal trail, think about different places, try to visit other Dena'ina communities when I can. Um, try to think about even just how much change has happened in, you know, in a couple decades and, and sort of, I don't know, I'm always, uh, maybe some would say I'm overly nostalgic, but um, I just try to remember where I come from and, and who we are as a people and what we've experienced and, and how, what our future's gonna look like and, and sharing that with you know, my, my nephews and, and the future. And it's interesting uh, because this is actually in some ways a, an ancient uh, Dena'ina practice. So the Dena'ina name for uh, Campbell Creek uh, is actually called Crying Ridge Creek. And the reason it's called Crying Ridge Creek is, is if you t follow Campbell Creek and you go up into the headwaters in the mountains, there's the North Fork and the South Fork of, of Campbell Creek. And on the South Fork of Campbell Creek, there's a, a peak today now known as uh, Tenina Peak. It was an attempt to honor the people. There were a couple mountains that were named various Tenina names uh, in the 1960s, largely forgotten, but I've kind of revived that, hey, these were an attempt. But they would go up to this ridge at Tenina Peak and they could look out across the entire Anchorage Bowl up towards the, the, the mouth of Susitna into the Susitna Flats. And they would go up there and meditate or pray and, and, and chant and, and be connected to the mountains. Um, this is a deeply held uh, Athabascan or Dene spiritual belief was to be in the mountains. Um, I've talked to elders and they say that there was never a more happy time, you had to be careful, but a more happy time than in the fall to be up in the mountains uh, to hunt sheep and, and berry, collect berries and trap ground squirrels and marmots and caribou that used to exist in this area. And, and then from the flip side, if the, the most prominent mountain uh, that we can all see from downtown Anchorage is Mount Susitna or what's colloquially called the Sleeping Lady. But in Denina, it's called Delishla or Little Mountain. And if you think about the mountain as a Sleeping Lady, the ridge off on the left-hand side, which I guess would be like her hair kind of laying down, was called uh, Chichalekan, which literally also means um, a ridge where uh, we cry. And it had the same function looking back towards Anchorage from the other direction. So there are these promontory points and um, what they would do is they would go up there, they would think about their ancestors, they would think about their families, they would think about good times, and they would think about their future and what they were going to do to, to survive and, and thrive into the future. So for me, 
you know, what I try to do when I can is try to get up into the mountains or up at a Kluton Lake, uh, into the parks, um, or even just a quiet spot along, you know, the coastal trail looking out on, uh, Tikahnu or, uh, Big Water River, um, because those don't change. You know, I had, when I was working at the Alaska Native Heritage Center, I remember one time there was this old man that I met uh, who was a GI that had been stationed at Anchorage. I want to say it's like the mid to late fifties, maybe early 1960s, but definitely before uh, oil came. And, you know, Anchorage was a town at that point and he hadn't been back since then. And he just was astounded of how much growth he had seen. And he says, I don't, I don't recognize anything. And we were standing out at the heritage center and we looking towards the Chugach mountains behind us. And I said, well, look up there. I said, you remember those, there's Arctic Valley and, and there's that. I said, those mountains don't change. And he kind of calmed down for a second in a way, because he was kind of, I don't want to say he was agitated, but he was a little um, befuddled. And he looked at it and he thought about it for a minute. He kind of got a smile on his face and he said, yeah, you know, you're right. I hadn't thought of that. I said, yeah, those mountains don't really change. I mean, if you go on the hillside, there's a lot of houses now, but generally speaking, (laughs) you know, the, the mountains don't change. The peaks don't change. Glaciers are starting to change, but, but it pretty much looks the same way that it did 500 or a thousand years ago when you look that way. Or if you get up into the mountains, you look out. Yeah, you can see Anchorage, but you also see a lot of it that's pretty much the same. I mean, it's not like we have this urban sprawl that goes for, you know, 300 miles in all directions or anything. To continue using Anchorage as your classroom, like and follow this podcast on iTunes. If you'd like to learn more about Anchorage and Alaska, there are two excellent podcasts that we can recommend, Crude Conversations and Coffee and Kowak. Those are both available on iTunes as well. The Anchored City Podcast is grateful for a grant from Resonate Global Mission that, in part, makes this podcast possible. We are also grateful for our partnership with Street Psalms. Check them out at streetpsalms.org. And we are grateful for you, our listeners. The Anchored City Podcast is a production of the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative. The mission of the collaborative is to train the heads, hearts, and hands of urban leaders to love their city and seek its peace. When we say peace, we mean the desire to see a world where all things are the way they are supposed to be for all people. Find us online at anchorageutc.org and on social media at Anchorage UTC. Our theme song is by Anchorage's own Monica Lettner.